D.C. is actually the ninth capital of the United States of America. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. So 50 years before gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, there were no Native Americans there. My mind is blown on this episode. So when the boat hit the iceberg, Wella, 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 ooh, tell me more, tell me more, it's time for smart drivel. What? Yes. You what? Yes, it's time for smart drivel, everyone. I'm your co-host, Kurt Schneider, here with... Your other co-host, John Ellenthal. And for loyal listeners to the podcast, you might remember that Kurt was in a high school production of Greece, but his singing was so unwelcome that he was told he had to mouth the words. And now that he is the co-host of a podcast, he can live his dream that he's been pining away at since high school. I only had to mouth the words of the backup. Well, my solo, I got to sing solo. Hang on. You were so bad that they made you mouth the words when you were a backup singer, but they let you have a solo? That makes no sense, by the way. <laughs> and I... making no sense is actually a good jumping off point for this episode. The funny thing was, and this makes no sense, you're right. I was told I could not sing in any of the backup songs. I had to mouth the words, but apparently I was good enough or not to do my own solo. So I I was able to sing a solo, but I was not allowed to do the backup. Yeah. So I, I have two things to tease out of that, Kurt, that are the perfect jumping off point for this episode. One, that makes no sense. And two, it happened in school. So we're going to talk about a bunch of things that we were taught in school, specifically about American history, that make no sense because they are not true. In fact, they're false. so not true that they're false. So let's, let's start at the very beginning. Right in there is a falsehood that we were always taught the beginning of America was 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And why did he set sail, Kurt? Well, we were taught to prove that the earth was not flat. So let me ask you a question about that. Back in 1492, did anyone really believe that the earth was flat? Uh, Probably people who were not too bright, but no, because dating back to like Aristotle and Euclid and a lot of the Greeks, they back then they posited that it was a round sphere. So certainly by 1492. I think it was well accepted by 1492 that the world was not, the earth was not flat. So why did he set sail, Kurt? Well, one thing was he was trying to get a shortcut from Europe to China, where all the riches were in China. And he was trying to go to India as well, which, oh, by the way, is why we call them Indians instead of Native Americans, because he screwed up and thought that's what he was going to. But He went west instead of east, trying to find a shortcut. And the first thing he hit, bam, was not America, but it's the modern day Caribbean. It was the Bahamas. It was Cuba. It was Dominican Republic, Hispaniola, Haiti. And are those part of America, Kurt? No. Most decidedly not. So he didn't sail west to prove the world was flat. The earth was flat. And 
he didn't actually land in America, yet the common lore is that Columbus discovered America. And the truth is there were Europeans who had explored this part of the world before, like Leif Erikson, no relation to Leif Garrett. Leif Garrett. Wow. He was like the guy with the long blonde hair, right? Did you have a poster of him on your wall when you were growing up, Kurt? I did not. No. Farrah Fawcett? I did not. My brother had Farrah Fawcett, I think, and Suzanne Summers. Well, Farrah Fawcett in the 70s was, you know, was iconic. However, yes. so that that's Columbus. Yeah. So the very origin story of America that we were taught in school is simply not true. All right, so let's advance ourselves to the birth of America, not the founding of America, which was not true. Tell us about when the pilgrims yeah. set sail from England yeah. in the 1600s. Yeah, they left. They got here in 1620 because they were getting religiously persecuted over in England. That's what we were led to believe. And the truth yeah. is... They were not really escaping religious intolerance. They had found religious tolerance. In fact, some of them were living quite peacefully in Holland. However, they did head to the New World seeking economic opportunity, and they too wanted to preserve their British identity, which is tough to do when you go to Holland, whereas the New World, you can be who you want to be. So like we've always thought, Everything in religion, everything in politics, everything in lore, all comes down to money. So they were doing it for financial opportunity, which basically is the credo of America. We talked about this in a podcast. Our religion, our national religion is capitalism. Yeah, look, I think that's part of it. But I think what's really interesting here about all of these American, you know, quote unquote facts is... First, many of them are not true. And the interesting part is what allowed them to become cemented as the basic platforms that tell the story of America. And a lot of times it was, you know, a story told many years after the fact or memorialized in a song like we heard with Columbus. And that becomes the de facto way it was. In fact, so let's, sit with, let's continue with our pilgrims, right? Let's talk about what's been in our lore the whole Thanksgiving. time. Thanksgiving, yes. Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving was thought to be this wonderful three-day autumn harvest between the pilgrims and the Indians, where they literally buried their hatchets away from the ceremony and, you know, basically broke bread for three days. And that, too, is not true. Unfortunately. The real story is rather horrific. Would you like to share it with our listeners? One story that I did dig up was it actually, there were no Native Americans there. It was just the Americans. And one thing they were doing was, or just not the Americans, the, the Europeans, they were celebrating actually a massacre over the Pequot Indians, where they right. killed a couple hundred of them in retaliation for one white European who was found dead. That's and they right. were celebrating it and giving thanks for that rampage and murder. Not something you want to be sort of establishing your national heritage on. And by the way, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. So I'd like to be Norman Rockwell about it and not uh, Freddy Krueger about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> we'll accept the standard <laughs> issue Rockwellian image of the autumnal harvest where people of difference come together and create communion. 
which is a beautiful sentiment. It just would be a little bit better or a lot better if it were actually based on what really had happened. But that story would not quite have had the same legs that it had if it were based on facts. What's on every Thanksgiving table in the paintings, always? A cornucopia. Yes! Good for you. That's exactly what I was thinking. A cornucopia, which, of course, is the horn of plenty, basically, with food coming out of it in, in great masses. All right. So where are we now? We're at the birth of the country. We're in the 1600s. I guess the next big thing in American history would be the American Revolution. Yeah. And we okay. have a lot of lore that's born from there. So first, we have Betsy Ross. It is true that she was a flag maker in Philadelphia around that time. It is not true that she was the one who designed the American flag. In fact, it was her grandson who promulgated the story of his grandmother making the flag about a 100 years later. I'm sure then somebody wrote a poem or a song, and there you have it. So it is not well accepted by historians that Betsy Ross designed the flag. There are many who speculate that Francis Hopkinson, who signed the declaration, was indeed the designer of the flag. But it feels nice that this woman with you got the cap on and she's sitting in on a rocking chair invented by Ben Franklin and she's on a porch. That's the first true thing that's remained true for all these years. He did indeed invent the rocking chair. Okay, so let's just quickly talk about our first president. He did not. We can't. We can't. We can't because we got American Revolution stuff to talk about before we have a president. Right. I know. But okay, I'm talking about the man, though. He didn't have wooden teeth. He didn't chop down a cherry tree, right? He didn't. Anyway. Next thing you're going to tell me that the Liberty Bell didn't ring on July 4th, 1776 and crack on that day. No, it did not. In fact, it wasn't even called the Liberty Bell at that point. It was basically just the State the House bell. bell in the Pennsylvania yeah. State House and apparently had been a maintenance nightmare and had cracked years and years earlier. In fact, the crack we see now was actually a crack that probably didn't even appear until the 1800s, but it did not ring and crack as the story would have you believe on July 4th, 1776. Also, and we all know the beautiful painting, which is in the Met. And I actually saw that this morning. It's George Washington crossing the Delaware, except he was not in a tiny boat in the sun going across, standing up and getting ready to go. It was at night. It was a huge storm. And by the way, they used cables. It was only 300 yards wide when right. they went across. But there's tons of horses and cannons and everything. And they were basically when we were pulled across by a cable. Right. So it wasn't but, the little boat we see in the picture. That would not have made a good painting, though, with all these people. But it just shows you again how a poem or a painting can freeze a histo- an historical, a historical. How do you do that? An or a historical, an historical moment for posterity and perpetuity and other p words. So, how about we're in the revolution, and this guy said the most famous, one of the most famous patriots of all time: "The British are coming! The British are coming!" Paul Revere. And you know what? He did it by himself. He yelled it so loudly. One if by land, two if by sea, he saw it. The British are coming. The British are coming. Not really true. He did ride. He did ride. I think you told us in an episode, a million episodes ago, when we were talking about people who were forgotten, who were forgotten to history. 
Paul Revere has not forgotten the history, but I think you told us he didn't even finish the ride. The British captured him. And the truth is he was not riding alone that night. He is the only one who has been immortalized, but he wasn't even immortalized until many years later, but he was riding. He was one of four men and one woman riding that night. The names that are lost to history are Samuel Prescott, Israel Bissell, who both went on to form the state of Israel, as well as the Bissell vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Neither are true. William Dawes, that is the theme today. None of this is true. And Sybil Luddington, who was the female, they all rode with Paul Revere. And what's interesting, it wasn't until 85 years later, 1860, when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem yeah. about this ride and Paul Revere's name was used. And at that point, he became the great American historical figure of the Revolutionary War that he's remembered by. In fact, everyone's taught he was, except he wasn't. He was one of many. The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, right? It was one of the most amazing poems that we ever were able to learn. And in that, he also talks about him saying, the British are coming, the British are coming. By the way, Everyone was British back then. You wouldn't say the British are coming. That's like you riding through town saying the Americans are coming. The Americans are coming. We were all people were British back then. So they were supposed he probably said the regulars are coming. That's what they were called. The regulars are coming. So I do know the poem Paul Revere's Ride by Longfellow. In fact, my kids and I used to recite it a lot. It's so iconic. And it starts with the line that we all, which is what made Revere famous, right? Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. And it's all about him going around and doing this. So, Yeah, so I wonder why Longfellow decided to leave uh, Prescott, Bissell, Dawes, and Luddington out. I guess it didn't rhyme with here, like Revere does. (laughs) Exactly. He's incredibly famous in American history, basically because his last name rhymed best with what Longfellow was doing. What's that poem called? The Midnight Ride? Of Paul Revere. Did you know that that poem is what's inspired Gladys Knight to write The Midnight Train to Georgia? Yeah, almost true, but not. The Pips wrote it. No, that's the untruthy part. The Pips actually wrote it, not Gladys Knight. Of course, that song has nothing to do with the Midnight Ride, other than the fact that they both took place at midnight. And they both involve modes of transportation. We skipped over, if we're going chronologically, one of the other truisms that we were always taught and was made famous by Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, that the Salem witch trials, if you were committed or, 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 or found guilty of, of magic, you were burned at the stake. That's what you do with witches. You burn them at the stake like they did with uh, Joan of Arc, right? And not true. How did we kill people back then, John, if they were if they were committed we hang them or stoned them yeah really hung right well pictures are hung people are hanged kurt so we hanged them exactly Uh, and uh by the way you're thinking about shirley jackson the lottery with tess hutchinson oh was that that was the stoning that's right that's pretty brutal you're right the lottery oh man but anyway also something that was just blatantly wrong but again it's more fantastical and makes for better literature Sure. And I mean, better story. It's a, it's more dramatic. 
And Arthur Miller in The Crucible, really, that was just an allegory for McCarthyism and going after everyone and trying to make witches out of all the people in Hollywood for being non-communists or communist supporters. And what famous Hollywood star was Arthur Miller married to at one point? Marilyn Monroe. That is correct. So you know what else we skipped over, Kurt? Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. That is currently true. It has not always been the capital, Kurt. What number capital is Washington? Three, John, just like Babe Ruth's number. And name those three cities. Philadelphia, New York, and Washington, D.C. Believe it or not, Kurt, because Congress kept having to move to stay ahead of the British during the American Revolution, D.C. is actually the ninth capital of the United States of America. Whoa. What are the other I can't name them all, but it was very briefly in Baltimore. I believe it was even briefly in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Again, the Congress had to keep moving to stay ahead of the British. But the three you mentioned are certainly the big three. And didn't we learn in the Broadway hit musical Hamilton that DC was picked because it was a compromise? Wasn't that in the room where it happened or something? And it was was a compromise that they would move it to the southern states if the southern states gave up some things. Yeah, that's right. It was all part of the big trade. And I think New York remained the financial capital of the country. D.C. became the political capital. And that was indeed the trade that was made. So D.C. was the ninth capital. Okay, Kurt, you did so well with the question about the Washington, D.C. not being the first capital. No, I didn't. I said three. It was well, the nine. question was, was it the first capital? And you oh, said dang. no. And then I asked you as a follow up what number it was. And you said three and three and nine have a very close relationship because, you know, three fits oh, into God. nine and they're both very important numbers in baseball. And by the way, can we just say one quick thing about baseball? Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball. OK. OK. So I'm going to ask you another question. When did the gold rush start? 1849. And where? San Francisco, actually Sacramento, north of San Francisco. So believe it or not, Kurt, even though we've been led to believe that that was the start of the great American gold rush. And what is California's nickname? The Golden State. Right. And then what's the football team's name in San Francisco? The 49ers. By the way, the reason why it's called the Golden State is because the way the sun hits all of the like wheat in the afternoon. Nothing to do with the gold rush? Nope. It has to do with it looks golden. All the hills are gold in the afternoon. So 50 years before gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, a 17-pound chunk of gold was discovered by a young man in North Carolina And the next thing you know, 30,000 prospectors descended to the area to make their fortune. It was the first American gold rush. And then, believe it or not, gold was discovered in Georgia. And then Georgia was overrun by prospectors. But history that we were taught would have us believe that the real first gold rush was in California in 1849. But to be fair, it was the largest one, and it produced not only the largest output of gold, but also it created 
all these people moving west. And so it moved us west. We were already in Georgia, North Carolina, just like the Klondike was a huge rush too, which enabled us to, with uh, Seward's Folly, we were able to get all of Alaska or Seward's Icebox, as they called them at the time. Do you like Klondike bars? Yes. Do you I like do. them more or, or less than Eskimo pies? Well, Eskimo pies are not frozen. So what are you like talking those. about? <laughs> Eskimo pies are not frozen. They're called Eskimo. What do you think? They're was, heated up? I was thinking of those moon pies. Well, I would, that, that leads directly then to moon pies, which gets us back to our very first episode, the premiere episode of Smart Journal, which of course was pie, the thing you eat, versus pie, the thing you use to measure the circumference of a circle. And Kurt's outlandish assertion that there was an absolute relationship between the two and Correct. smart dribble was born. So, Kurt, I'm not arguing that the California gold rush was not a big deal. I'm just arguing that we've been led to believe that was the start of the gold yeah. rush. And the truth yeah. is, it's not. And that's why it's on that. this episode. Okay, let's get closer to wrapping up this episode by doing a little fast forwarding here. I would like to discuss the 1860s, which were a bitch in a lot of ways in this country, you know, the Civil War thing. But we're going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about Abraham Lincoln, whose nickname is? Silent Abe. (laughs) Honest Abe, or perhaps the Great Emancipator, which is what I was going for. It's not Silent Cow, it's Cal Coolidge. Yeah, so what did the Emancipation Proclamation do, Kurt? Well, it said that we would not have slavery in America anymore. Right. We were taught that that was the end of slavery and that all slaves were freed by virtue of the Emancipation Proclamation. Kurt, would you like to know the truth? Yes, I believe it only rang true in the North. (laughs) Well, actually, it only applied to the Confederacy, quite the opposite. And you may Ah. have noticed in 18... So it's, it's January 1st, 1863, Lincoln publishes the Emancipation Proclamation. And considering we're in the middle of the Civil War with the Confederacy, the Confederacy wasn't all that taken by new laws that the Union was putting out there. So the Emancipation Proclamation comes out and it only frees slaves in the Confederacy. However, the states that were loyal to the Union that had slavery were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. So Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, all of which had slavery, all of which were loyal to the Union, were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation. It wasn't until the 13th Amendment, which many historians believe was much more a function of Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists, and less Lincoln, even though he played an important role. The 13th Amendment, which was ratified by, was approved by the Senate, I think, in April of 64, 1864. And then the House in January of 1865 did not get ratified by three quarters of the states until December of 1865, at which point that made slavery, that outlawed slavery in the United States, not the Emancipation Proclamation. My mind is blown on this episode. Everything that I, truths I once thought were so held in such high regard have just been shattered. Boom! 
we, we've lost all of our guardrails. Like the 13th chime of the clock, Kurt. Here's two. Whoa. Here's two simple things. Okay. Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. Now, I read this great book, which is a fictionalized account of, it was called The Last Days of Night. And it was Westinghouse versus Edison with Tesla involved too. Basically, Edison was an amazing salesman and marketer, and he just took it and then made it. Now, you got to credit that. that is, there is room for this, but he didn't invent it. But he was an inventor. He did have he did house other inventors that he just took their copyrights, but he didn't do it. And then Alexander Graham Bell did not invent the telephone. We always gave him credit for it. He patented it in 1876, yep. but 16 years previous, an Italian guy by the name of Minucci, I think that was Meucci, came up with a teletrofono. And uh, that was the first telephone. And he finally got credit for it years. Do you know what his first call was? He ordered pizza. <laughs> did not. So it, it's true. We have this mythology. Dominoes. Yes. We have this mythology in our culture of the lone genius having this eureka moment where suddenly it all comes together and there's this giant step function improvement in, in this case, our ability to communicate. But the truth is, it's a lot more just the next step on the ladder. And it's all of these incremental inventions that ultimately coalesce into something new. So it's much more of an organizing of what's been created than one of these, aha, I got it. So the next thing you're going to tell me is there is no Dr. Pepper. And if there were, he was not acting alone. I wouldn't tell you something like that. I wouldn't disturb your peace. So we need to wrap this up, John. All right. I will close with things that happened in the 1900s. We can bring us a little closer to now, just like you did with the telephone. Yes. So the Titanic, which we all know, hit an iceberg and sank tragically. I saw the movie. We all saw the movie. And it makes perfect sense. Big iceberg tears a hole in the hull, water floods in and the boat sinks. Yeah. As it turns out, while the iceberg was not good, there had been a fire raging out of control in the ship's hull for three weeks before it hit the iceberg. So when the boat hit the iceberg, there had already been significant damage to the ship's hull. So it was a confluence of events, not a singular. There's no smoking iceberg in this case. The hull was weakened. Three weeks, so two and a half weeks before they left, this thing, this fire was going in port and they still let people come on and go. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Smart Drivel. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.